Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the Southeast. And today we are going to be discussing a case that Hussein is going to present with me. So over to you, Hussein. Thanks very much, Amy. So let's delve straight in. So you are the MedReg on call. Uh, You have an A&E referral. The description is a 52-year-old female who's asthmatic. She's come in via ambulance, generally unwell, a little bit drowsy, had a high news score, and so is treated as an infective exacerbation. So that's all you've got at the moment. Uh, When you're speaking to A&E, what are you going to ask them to do? Okay. Is the patient actually in A&E at the moment then, and they've actually seen her? Yeah. So they've just come to A&E Resus, uh, asthma, known care under the respiratory physicians at this hospital, likely needs admission. So you said they treated her for an infective exacerbation of asthma. So I'd want to know how they got to that diagnosis. So um, looking at her basic observations. So I guess A, B, C, D, E. How is she breathing? Blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturations, respiratory rates and how they've treated her and how she responded to treatment. So steroids, nebulizers, yeah. so very basic things to start off with. Perfect. So yes, a combination of both what the ambulance crew did uh, and what they've just started in A&E. So airway has been patent. Um, she is conscious. She's alert. Uh, breathing saturates around 94%. Uh, she has been wheezy both in the ambulance and in A&E. Shallow breathing, haven't got a peak flow yet, but I'll try. Respiratory rate is 24, but quite shallow. Blood pressure is 118 over 65. Heart rate's 96. Uh, GCS 15. Uh, blood glucose 7.5. Uh, temperature is 37 in A&E, but the paramedic said she was febrile with them. Any more thoughts? Um, I think I'd like to know what her arterial blood gas shows. So you said that her oxygen saturation is 94%. How much oxygen was that on? So that was on no oxygen. On no oxygen. Okay. So I'd like to know what her CO2 is, what her pH is, bicarbon base excess. Good, because that's what I did. So the thing that caught my eye was a little bit drowsy, asthmatic. Um, so we wanted to make sure they weren't retaining CO2. Yes. Um, good news was, was she wasn't acidotic. Uh, PO2 was 9.3 in room air. CO2 was 5.2, Basex bicarb was all, all right. Lactate was a little bit up, but she's had uh, a salbutamol nebulizer a couple of times. Anything else? Um, I'd like to look at her electrolytes. All normal. Okay, so her sodium's normal. Her potassium's normal, even though she's had some salbutamol nebulizers, so it hasn't lowered her potassium. Yeah. Okay, so she's got a normal sodium, normal potassium, slightly elevated lactate. I'd want to rule out sepsis yeah so you've got an elevated respiratory rate you've got a raised lactate temperature although not necessarily important in the criteria for SERS or sepsis blood pressure is okay but she's I guess she's nearly tachycardic so I'd start to think about sepsis why is she drowsy though her CO2 is normal so she's not hypercapnic her respirate's okay her blood pressure's fine you said her GCS was 15 and her blood glucose was 7.5. Okay. Yeah, so I'm glad you said all of that because that's exactly uh, what we did and what we were thinking. So uh, 
lady who's asthmatic, drowsy, we've ruled out CO2 retention, the gas is reassuring. So at this stage, we're not really thinking about escalating care to intensive care, whatever, to take over her breathing. Uh, she's alert, GCS is 15. So actually, you know, what is this history about feeling a little bit drowsy, whatever? Um, you're right about the sepsis thing. So again, that's what the paramedics highlighted, you know, high new score, we have to treat this as sepsis until proven otherwise she's already got a respiratory condition so it's prone to infections and um, so that's exactly what they did they treated her as sepsis antibiotics and fluids uh and you know promptly admit wanted to admit her under the medic so it was a pretty easy thing to take because given that history and the observations and the treatment that started she's going to need to come in um so this is where it gets a bit interesting um obviously there's a lot of cases that you would have seen mm -hmm. over your career to date where you've been told one story, but then it goes down mm -hmm. another way. Um, what if I said that when I went to see her, Clark, her, she's now been moved to the acute medical unit. Um, what bits of her history uh, and things would you want to delve into a bit further as the medical team? So I'd start off by retaking the history. So I'd want to look at the history of the presenting complaint. Um, if she wasn't able to provide me with it because she was quite drowsy, I'd get a collateral history from a family member, friend, or speak to the GP if none was readily available. Past medical history is really important. Is there a condition that we've missed that we're not sure of? Any medications that she takes regularly? Does she take anything over the counter or any illicit medication? So start to think about recreational medications, toxicology screen. Absolutely. Um, social history, alcohol, does she smoke? Um, does she work? What sort of work does she do? She does activities of daily living. Um, any allergies that we know about? Do, have we given us a medication that she's had an allergic reaction to? Unlikely, but I'd always have to think about it. Family history, anything that we've missed about at home. Um, anything that's different at home? Has she had any recent work done at home? Has she had a new fire fitted? Has she, I'm starting to think about carbon monoxide poisoning. Has she had any asbestos in the house? You're nodding your head. I'm not sure whether what I'm talking about is right or not. <laughs> no, so lots of things there. And actually okay. you, you had it in, in sort of that first bit in terms of take a really detailed history, yes. uh, and the bit I'm looking for is, is the past medical history and drug history. So I'll, I'll cut to the chase. So obviously I've got a respiratory background, so I want to know about her asthma. Who is she under? How severe it is? When was her last check? Uh, what is her current therapy? Um, is she on biological therapy? Is she brittle? Has she had any ITU stays? Has she ever been intubated? All those kind of usual things. Um, and the standout thing was that she is a notoriously what we call a difficult asthmatic nothing to do with her personality or anything, but it's just di very difficult to control. And she has frequent exacerbations. Um, she's on inhalers. She's on Montelukast. Um, she's also a type 2 diabetic. She's on metformin and glycoside, uh, but her BMs are normal. Um, what drug should we worry about in someone who's got difficult to control asthma? So she also had long-term steroids. Um, okay. Um, as a result, she'd also developed some osteoporosis and crush fractures and um, so she was on quite high dose analgesia so regular paracetamol um, and she also had low dose PRN 
opiates. Um, now, the reassuring thing here was that she hadn't overdosed or anything. She hadn't been taking too much. And as I said, her gas was okay. So she hadn't taken too much morphine to make her drowsy from that sense. But it was, it was something interesting to see. But um, the steroids thing was, mm. was the sort of the, the red flag. And actually, when you say about taking a proper history about the presenting complaint, it turned out that actually she didn't really have many signs of a chest infection. You know, she hadn't been coughing much. She's a difficult asthmatic, so she's always quite wheezy. Steroids had made her a little bit overweight as well. So her mobility is not great and she's already limited by um, crush fractures, etc. There's something I alluded to at the start and I deliberately was quite subtle about it, but generally unwell. That was what had been recorded, the paramedics and in A&E. But actually when you delved a bit further, she'd been vomiting for a few days. We don't know why. She's not sure if it was food that she hadn't eaten you know, whether she had had it from uh, an unsafe food source or whatever, but she'd just been vomiting. So we measured her lying standing blood pressure and it was 96 over 60. That was standing. Okay, so what I'm concerned about now is she's vomiting. She hasn't been able to keep down any of her steroids. And because of her long-term steroid usage, she's had adrenal suppression. And therefore, when she presents feeling generally unwell, it may be because of adrenal insufficiency. Bingo. So we diagnosed her as secondary adrenal insufficiency um, from uh, sort of external glucocorticoid treatment, which has been long-term. And actually, rather than this being an asthma attack, she had fe felt generally unwell because she hadn't been taking her steroids, uh, not, not being able to absorb it. So we managed her with a stat dose of hydrocortisone, 100 milligrams IV, uh, and then came up with a regimen afterwards. So it's along the lines of 50 milligrams every six hours afterwards. We contacted both the respiratory team to make sure uh, they're aware of her admission, but actually also the endocrinology team, uh, given the diagnosis. So this just raised a few uh, interesting things, uh, just from the simple things about history and past medical history, is that actually uh, this patient had a few stresses. Um, and I've got to credit uh, an endocrinologist called Dominic Kavlin, who uh, very kindly delivered a talk about adrenal insufficiency. And he managed to summarize uh, this kind of presentation within a minute, which I, I found really useful. His mantra was that if you're under stress, you're putting yourself at risk of this type of insufficiency if you're on long-term steroids. And she's actually had three. So she was a little bit hypovolemic because she hadn't been taking much food or drinking. She'd also been vomiting, so she's also losing fluid that way. Uh, and if she did have a gastric infection, which was causing her to vomit in the, in, in the first place, that's also another stress infection. So she's got sort of a triple whammy uh, and she wasn't taking her steroids. And actually, one of the key things is that if you are under stress, you should actually be doubling your steroid dose. So she's, she's losing out on, on, on quite a lot in, in that sense. Um, and actually was quite simply managed by just making sure she did have some steroid intake and she improved. So what was interesting there is when you have hypoadrenalism, normally because the whole of the adrenal gland is affected, then you often hypotensive. She wasn't you often have a high potassium and a low sodium. 
So she didn't fit that classical picture of hypoadrenalism. So I have to say, if I was given that picture in Rhesus, it's not the first thing that would spring to mind because obviously all the usual clinical signposts that I look at weren't there. Yeah. So what in this patient made you think of adrenal insufficiency? Yeah. So it was it was simply delving into the history. I was probably a little bit skeptical about whether this was actually an asthma attack. Um, obviously, it had been treated as sepsis, but it's that whole thing about being generally unwell. And it's actually what's come out in some of the literature uh, that I've been searching as a result of this. Um, there's some incredible, really simple guidelines by the Society for Endocrinology um, about how to manage these cases. Um, you're right when you say, why would you think that when all the signs and the obs didn't really suggest that there was um, an adrenal crisis? But I think that's the crux of this, is that actually it's a very grey area and it's very easy to get led down other paths like sepsis. Um, some of the signs for sepsis can actually be found in adrenal insufficiency. And the thing you said about sodium, potassium, blood pressure, etc., uh, just highlights the importance for us to differentiate between primary adrenal insufficiency, where you do sometimes see those textbook signs, and secondary adrenal insufficiency, and secondary adrenal insufficiency, where some of the signs may mimic other things. Obviously, with her case, it's due to chronic exogenous glucocorticoid treatment. So she's been having doses of you know 30 milligrams a day for, for quite a significant period of time. Uh, the guidelines here say that if it's if you're having doses of more than five milligrams um, of prednisolone or the equivalent of another steroid for more than four weeks, you are at risk of this type of presentation. They very helpfully go through the signs and symptoms. I'll just list them here. So fatigue, lack of energy, weight loss, low blood pressure, particularly postural symptoms such as dizziness, uh, collapse. Uh, sometimes they can appear shocked. Um, abdominal pain, tenderness nausea, vomiting. Again, is it infection? Is it the adrenal insufficiency itself? Very hard to uh, figure out. Fever, interestingly, is also a sign of adrenal insufficiency. But again, I know we've covered this in multiple other episodes. Fever, you know, first thing to think about is infection or malignancy. Uh, sometimes there can be confusion, delirium, somnolence. So I suspect that the comments about Someone saying that she appeared a little bit drowsy might have been more related to that than, you know, sort of respiratory failure causing retention of CO2. So, uh, and also you can, you can get random aches and pains, spasms of the muscles, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of signs there, which you wouldn't say is specifically for one thing. It actually covers quite a lot of differential diagnoses. Um, I think the thing that made me think about it was, you know, it wasn't an asthma attack. Her peak flow was actually okay. She's all, always wheezy. Um, and after a little bit of fluid resuscitation, she actually, you know, is able to be a bit more reticent in the history that she's giving. And it's the key thing, vomiting. If you're on long-term steroids, you're not going to be absorbing it. So is there something else going on here? Now, I must highlight that, obviously, I was a med reg on call. The sort of sequential events afterwards in terms of diagnosing, uh, getting the steroid regime right, et cetera, can then be passed on to the endocrinology team, the respiratory team, you know, why is she on long-term steroids? Is she, is she not appropriate for biological therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I just wanted to highlight the acute medical sort of um, 
input that we can have here. And that actually is a very simple thing to manage, you know, proper history, uh, rule out other things. So technically this can be a diagnosis of exclusion, but also the management is very simple. Give steroids. Uh, there's unlikely to be much harm from giving a one-off stat dose of intravenous hydrocortisone. But if you delay it or don't give it at all, this can actually be a life-threatening situation. Okay, some key learning points there. I'm just going to recap for those listeners who are interested in anatomy, the anatomy of the adrenal gland. So the adrenal gland has three layers and a central medulla. The three layers of the adrenal gland, the outer layer is the zona glomerulosa, which secretes aldosterone. The next layer down is the zona vesiculata, which secretes cortisol. The next layer is the zona reticularis, which secretes the sex hormones, testosterone. And then in the middle, you've got the medulla, which secretes catecholamines. And when you have adrenal insufficiency or adrenalitis or any abnormality with the adrenal gland, it can affect one or all of those layers of the adrenal gland, which is why they can become hypertensive because you're going to have abnormalities in aldosterone. It's why you can have abnormal blood glucose control because you're affecting cortisol. And particularly with our catecholamines, when you have malignancies of the adrenal medulla, it's via chromocytomas, you have abnormal blood pressure control, tachycardias, headaches, all driven by the different hormonal layers. So find that pretty interesting. Yeah. And the commonest cause of primarily adrenal insufficiency in this country is autoimmune adrenalitis. However, in some individuals who TB is a high risk, TB adrenalitis is actually a common cause elsewhere in the world. And we have seen some cases in the UK as well. So it's always worth thinking about. Yeah. Uh, and just to carry on from that. So those, if you're suspecting those causes and trying to work them up for the first time, uh, that's when you do the tests that may be a bit more familiar in the textbook presentation of a primary adrenal insufficiency. So you will see your hyponatremia, your hyperkalemia. Uh, sometimes there might be a normochromic anemia um, or hypoglycemia as well. Also need to bear in mind hyperthyroidism. That can sometimes trigger an adrenal crisis in itself. Um, so you want to monitor your 3T3 and T4 and your TSH. Um, and also, of course, you can do a paired serum cortisol and plasma ACTH and plasma ACTH. Um, later on in this lady's admission, I think she did end up having a short synaptin test. Um, but as I said, I'm just very much focusing on the acute management, very much as a non-endocrinology specialist. And also just to make a point there, if you've had high doses of intravenous hydrocortisone, the ability to interpret the short synaptin test and the response of the adrenal gland to the synaptin is impaired. Um, so in terms of the management, as I said, we covered, there's pretty much one thing to do and that's just give steroids uh, and then you can address a tapering regime soon after that. Um, there's a big thing about making sure that the patient is aware of exactly what to do when they encounter these situations. Again, uh, the Endocrinology Society have quite helpfully highlighted sick day rules. So if they have an illness or an infection, uh, they need to double their dose um, of steroids. Um, similarly, if they think they're not able to take them full stop, so, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera, then, or if they're preparing for a procedure such as an endoscopy, uh, then they really should seek medical attention because they might need to do intravenous replacement in the first instance. Good. Um, I just thought I'd, uh, 
touch on a couple of things sort of that I've tried to read a bit more widely about this. Um, so the references for this will be available when this episode is released. Um, so there was a systematic review by Joseph et al. in 2016, essentially was looking at the extent of adrenal insufficiency in adults who have glucocorticoid therapy. Um, so obviously with my respiratory hat on, we do have a lot of people with COPD exacerbations or asthma. And you with rheumatology will have people with PMR, et cetera, that are on you know high doses for quite a long time. Um, and I think from clinician to clinician, it varies about how you reduce steroid doses, um, particularly if it's just for a short course and they don't, are not normally steroid dependent. So come in and see a pity exacerbation, take steroid for five days or 10 days and then stop abruptly. Um, but I know that after about 10 days, two weeks, people do get a little bit tetchy about that and what they then think about, should we do a reducing regime? So I wanted to look at the evidence for for what is this. And actually, in summary, this systematic review says there's still a lot of work to be done. <laughs> yeah. They, across 100 glucocorticoid exposed participant groups, there was a median prevalence of adrenal insufficiency of 37%. So actually, it's, it's quite a large proportion of numbers. However, they weren't able to determine the time course or the effects of the reducing regimes there. And actually, they're conclusion is that there needs to be a lot more work done and research done in this area, despite there already being about 60 years worth of literature that they analysed. And the second thing that I looked at was, uh, I know you like your historical I do. facts. Who and when do you think the first adrenal insufficiency or crisis was identified? I reckon it was Caesar. <laughs> in, in um, I don't know. Enlighten me. So, uh, in this paper that I've, I've looked at, uh, again, I'll, we'll post the references up, but it's actually Thomas Addison. That makes sense, of course. In 1855. Yeah. Um, so he described the cardinal symptoms of adrenocortical insufficiency, uh, including some of the things that we mentioned already, weakness, fatigue, anorexia, abdominal pain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was invariably quite fatal until 1949 which is when cortisone was first synthesized and glucocorticoid replacement treatment became available. So whilst we're lucky in this day and age to hopefully diagnose it quickly and also give stat treatment, you know, effectively, it wasn't always the case. So that concludes this episode for today. Okay. I think the key thing that I've learnt from this is that primary adrenal insufficiency presents how we'd expect it to present. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is a lot more murky and their blood pressure can be normal. Sodium potassium can be normal. Important to check postural blood pressure and determine whether there's a drop. And if there's a drop in somebody on long-term steroids, think about adrenal insufficiency and treat accordingly with intravenous hydrocortisone and refer onwards at an appropriate time. And again, I think what you highlighted during this case is you thought there was something not quite right. So you went with your gut instincts and thought, actually, I need to think about something else here. And it worked and it was right. So well done. And yeah, just to echo that, that as a med reg, you actually rarely see first presentations of primal adrenal insufficiency. I don't think I've seen more than one or two on, on an acute take. But what I do see is many patients who are on long-term steroids. Up and down the country, you'll be seeing many patients with multiple comorbidities and polypharmacy. Um, so it's actually worth thinking about this type of presentation with all those patients, 
not just someone who may have a blank past medical history, um, but a bit of hyperpigmentation or a raised potassium. Um, it's far more common to see the complex things, uh, in which case uh, this and the guidelines that we've highlighted in this come useful. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Hussein. And thank you for listening to today's episode of the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to contact us, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet us at rcplondon. Thank you very much.